You're listening to the She is Fierce radio show. She is Fierce connects women to each other and their dreams. You'll meet incredible women who all have one thing in common. They took a leap. They've got passion. They're on a mission. They're doing exciting and rewarding things, and they want to help you take your big leap. And now your host, She is Fierce founder, Kelly Youngs. Welcome to the She is Fierce radio show. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce and Lift. Today, we're talking to former Ball State University basketball coach, award-winning author, and true groundbreaker for women in sports, and a former She is Fierce speaker, Debbie Powers. Debbie grew up in Indiana in the 50s and 60s and was always a gifted athlete with a passion for playing sports. She played against the boys because there were no teams for girls before Title IX, and eventually went on to lead Indiana University to the Final Four and be drafted into the first professional women's basketball league. Debbie played basketball at Indiana University, and that gave her a taste for organized competition, but also exposed her to the glaring inequality between men's and women's sports. Welcome, Debbie. So excited to have you here. Well, thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here, and if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'd like to read... A brief little story. Yeah, absolutely. 56 years ago, a 10-year-old Indiana girl ran up and down the playground basketball court. Her ponytail swayed and bounced as she dribbled, passed, shot, and defended. She wore Chuck Taylor Converse high-top sneakers handed down from her brother. Her teammates were neighborhood boys who included her as one of their own. She exalted in the exertion, the sweat her body moving around the court, and the feeling of accomplishment when her shot sailed through the basket. I'm going to play on the school team, she declared. In fact, she boasted, I'm going to be an Olympian and maybe even a professional player. But when it came time for tryouts for the school teams in elementary, middle school, and high school, it wasn't to be. There were no teams for girls, and she was not allowed to play on the boys' teams. The boys wanted her on their team, We'd win more if you were on our team, they said. You're the best player in the school. But the adults around her said, you can be the cheerleader. You can cheer for the boys. She hated cheerleading. So that young girl sat in the bleachers and watched her boy buddies play, then met them later in the neighborhood for a pickup game. She cried when she went to bed at night and in the quiet of her room said her prayers. She begged God to turn her into a boy overnight so she could play on a real team. That little girl was me. Kelly, 50 years ago, the social climate for female athletes was far different from today. Girls were expected to be quiet, polite, and passive. We wore dresses or skirts to school. We were expected to be ladylike at all times. Our career choices were nurse, secretary, or teacher. For a female athlete like me, the climate was extremely uncomfortable. My competitiveness and aggressiveness was considered abnormal. You'll probably never date or marry, people would tell me. My sexual orientation was questioned. The physicality was questioned because I loved to sweat and I was always disheveled. 
You'll never, you should never, ever, ever beat a boy in anything, I was told. Never show superiority. It'll hurt their ego. I didn't even know what they meant by an ego. I was conflicted and confused because athleticism oozed from my very soul. You have to realize that at the time, my role models were Donna Reed, Ozzie, and Harriet, television moms, and they wore dresses and high heels. A family ritual for my family was to watch the Miss America pageant every year, and I thought maybe that was what all women were to uh, try to be. But apparently the values derived from sports was not considered important for a girl. The good life for a female was to find a husband and live a stay-at-home life, raising children and learning how to make a good meatloaf. If I saw an athlete, it was someone like Peggy Fleming in ice skating or Kathy Rigby in gymnastics, very feminine sports. They were pretty. They wore makeup. The Olympics had no team sports for girls. And 800 meters was as far as a girl was allowed to run in track. There were no female sportscasters or sports writers. I had no exposure to even professional women, no attorneys, doctors, or businesswomen. The thought at that time was sport would be harmful to women, strenuous sports at least. It would harm our reproductive organs. We would become masculine. We're too weak for sports and obviously psychologically unfit because we would probably cry if we lost. The one dominant name in female sport emerging nationally was Billie Jean King. But as much recognition as she got, she had won three Wimbledons. She was supporting her law student husband. She couldn't even get a credit card in her own name or buy a house. And, of course, her wins did not generate a salary even close to what men were receiving. It was a different time. Oh, my gosh. What a different time. So, Debbie, um, thank you for sharing that with us, because I think that gives such context for the conversation that we're going to have. And, you know, I feel lucky because I've known you for a few years now. You were a speaker at our very first speaker series event. Um, And your story, I think, really touches on so many different women's experiences, whether it's professional women like you touched on, it's girls in sports. But it's also something that feels so unreal now. So I know um, years ago when you and I first talked, I I shared with you, you know, I grew up playing sports. And even though there are so many different inequalities and things that I could identify that were, you know, not so great today or, you know, 15 years ago when I was playing in school, the stories that you were sharing and that you just shared a little bit of are so different. And it feels like a completely different time when we're sitting here together just having a conversation. So With all of that background, what does it feel like now to be able to look back at that and be able to point out some of these things that just seem so unreal now? Well, we just finished watching the NCAA basketball championships, and I was glued to the television watching um, everything the women have. I finally got to play on a college team at Indiana University, but it was before the passage of Title IX. So we had to uh, buy our own shoes. Uh, make our own uniforms, travel in cars, uh, change clothes in a bathroom, um, sometimes spend the night sleeping on a gym floor at the opposing school. And then what I see what these women have today, I mean, we had no scholarships. Um, I paid my way through college, and I see these women not only getting their, their college degree paid for, but, gosh, all the opportunities they have. And then 
I watch the sportscasters, and most of them are women. It's it's very exciting to see all the opportunities that women have now. Yeah, but, you know, all of those opportunities really do come from women like you who were out there at the forefront who just said, hey, this is something that I love. Why shouldn't I be able to do it? And I, I love the example that you just gave about, you know, having your sexuality question, being questioned, you know, can you handle this? Are you going to cry? And at the same time, are you tough enough? So how did you deal with that? Like, how did you come up with that confidence? Because I know one of the things from reading your fabulous memoir um, that really struck my heart was the fact that you just kept pushing through. You just seemed determined. I just loved it so much. There was just something about sport that was like in my soul. And um, whether it be out on my driveway by myself, shooting baskets or playing in the neighborhood, it just was part of me. It, it was like cellularly, I just loved the feeling of, of movement. And of course, then when I went to college, uh, the only career opportunity then for me was to enjoy that sport with other women, other girls. So I became a physical education teacher and coach because it was the only thing I could do to relay my love for sport to other girls. Hmm. So, you know, you just briefly touched on it. But one of the things that really struck me when I read your book, Meeting Her Match, was the idea that when people saw that you were good at sports, that they said you should be a cheerleader. And there's nothing wrong with being a cheerleader, but the concept that somebody could say to you, and you, and I know you shared many people said to you, hey, if you're good at this, you should only be doing X. Otherwise, something's wrong. Well, that was the only thing available to girls at that time. If you were athletic, you were a cheerleader. Um, interestingly, even my elementary and middle school teachers, when I would go out for recess and I'd be playing basketball and football and baseball with the boys, they would pull me over and say, Debbie, you need to be over doing jump rope and four square and hopscotch with the girls. Those are girls' sports. And you can't show boys up in either the classroom or the sports field. And how did you respond to that? I uh, continued doing what I wanted to do and, um, you know. And have done so ever since. I've done so ever since. <laughs> and uh, I know a lot of women my age face this not only in the sports world, but in the business world. I had a woman that read my memoir and she said, Debbie, I knew nothing about sports. I didn't enjoy sport. But I told my dad when I was 15 years old, I wanted to be a businesswoman. And he looked at me and said, why would a girl want to do that? So it wasn't just in sport. It was women in science and in business, in technology, in medicine. There are grounds breakers out there in other fields that are my age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even um, the story of She is Fierce, and I share this a lot, that I had this idea such a long time ago and tried to get so many different people on board with it for years and years. And, and even in really recent times, many people kind of just looked at me like, you're crazy. Why would you do this? And now in the last, I would say like five or maybe seven years, there's been this amazing movement of women who are supporting feminism and who just kind of see it as something that is a natural cause, which is wonderful. And I think that that comes from women like you and women, like you said, women professionals, women in all different areas who have taken those first steps, who dealt with it when it was really, really tough and, and made those opportunities possible. Well, and it was way before me. I mean, just think of the suffragettes and mm. the women way back that 
didn't even have the right to vote. And they gave up a lot of times their families, their children, and fought for women. And that was, you know, many, many, many years before I was born. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to ask you to share a little bit more of your story. And one of the things that really stood out for me was a story that you shared on our 2015 She is Fierce stage, all about how you worked hard, um, I think it was with your volleyball team, and you got to the state finals, and you ended up as a girls team having to play against the boys for the state title. Can you share a little bit of that with us? That was really what prompted me to write my memoir. I had so many people, years and years and years after this event, say to me, tell me about the time when you had to play against the boys team. And I hadn't really reflected on it that much, but I thought back and I said, you know what, I need to write this up as a story. So that's why I wrote Meeting Her Match, which is my memoir, which talks about my time growing up and playing. But then it culminates with that experience. And what happened was I was coaching or my first few years of coaching in high school as a high school coach. And I coached volleyball, basketball, and tennis. And I was the cheerleading sponsor. Now, go figure. Uh, this was right after Title IX had passed, and we women that were in sport, we had to do everything. But, <laughs> um, and much to my despair, they also gave me cheerleaders. But anyway, I would loved coaching. And my girls' volleyball team, uh, little spark plug, little determined, I called them my little Debbies because they are all like me, we went to the state championship in Indiana, the final game, and the team we had to play had allowed two high school boys to be on their girls' volleyball team. We met them in the state championship match. And if anybody knows anything about volleyball, the girls' net is lower. These guys were 6'2", 6'3". My tallest player was 5'8". And it was the most unprecedented, unforgettable athletic experience I had ever experienced. And it was like deja vu. I had grown up playing against boys all the time and saying, I can beat you guys. Now I was coaching a group of ragmuffin little girls. And we said, we're going to beat the boys at the state championship. And what happened? Well, well, I could, should say you should read my book. But, well, of um, course, yeah. everyone can read the book to get more details. Yeah, yeah, but actually it went down to a final point, and we did win. We beat boys for the girls' 1975 state championship. That's an incredible story, and I think, you know, I played volleyball, and I, I know what you're talking about, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, in many sports it wouldn't really matter, would it, if, if you're playing a, a couple boys on the team, but in volleyball it really does. And it's an amazing achievement that I think stands out, especially at that time. Exactly. And a lot of people ask me, how could that happen? How could they allow boys to play on the girls' team? Well, it was soon after Title IX had passed, and they were allowing girls to play on some of the boys' team because the law said, you've got to allow girls to play on teams. So if a high school did not have a girls' tennis team, they would say, well, Susie, you can play on the boys' tennis team. Or golf. Mm -hmm. Well, these boys up in South Bend, Indiana said, well, we want to play volleyball. And there was not a boys volleyball team. So they said, well, it should be equal. We should get to play on the girls team. Well, it's a lot different when, you know, they're spiking the ball at 60 miles per hour across the net, um, mm -hmm. way above the net. And, and uh, one of the young men actually was a junior Olympian and ended up getting a full ride college scholarship in men's volleyball. Oh, he was goodness. that good. Wow. And my little mighty mites, uh, 
we showed them how to play. They made it happen. Well, do you st- keep in touch with any of those girls now? Absolutely. In fact, uh, we all got together a few years ago and had a, a, a reunion, a how 40th cool. reunion of the team, and they hung a banner in our gym. Um, of course, back then, you know, hey, yay, girls, pat on the back, you won. Now we finally have a banner 40 years later. That's awesome. Well, at least it has come. That is awesome. <laughs> So you are listening to the She is Fierce radio show. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce. And when we're back, we'll have more with Debbie Powers, former Ball State basketball coach and author of the award-winning memoir, Meeting Her Match. We're back and you are listening to the She is Fierce radio show. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce, and we are talking with Debbie Powers, former Ball State basketball coach and author of Meeting Her Match. So, Debbie, you're the only girl in your family, and in your book, Meeting Your Match, you share that while your parents supported your love for sports and never told you you shouldn't do it, you were still expected to be the one to go inside and help when your mom had to cook dinner or get ready and get things set or help tidy up while the boys got to keep playing outside and having fun. I think that mindset, I think, sometimes seems outdated, right? So as I was reading your book, it seems like an outdated mindset, but we still tend to treat young women that way. What have you seen over the course of time? How has that changed for you? Well, first of all, young women that are involved in sports now don't even know there was a time when they could not play sport. That That's number one. I think the household responsibilities that women still have carries through today. Um, I was reading a study the other day that said women, even if they work full-time, still absorb over half of the household duties, including raising of the children and, you know, sewing the Halloween costumes and Mm -hmm. doing the Christmas shopping. And you probably know that pretty well. (laughs) Um, I think, though, men are absorbing more of that responsibility in in child rearing. I mean, we would never have heard of house husband or stay-at-home dads back in my day, not back in the Leave it to Beaver days, of course. But, you know, I I think um, it's a balancing act that all of us women have to have, and I think uh, sports women have to engage in the same kind of balance. I mean, sports casters on television, their women are probably worrying about what's happening back home with their children. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's just a natural thing. And I think, but we can do a lot of the tasks that men used to hold dear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, she is fierce very well. And you know that the women that are listening in our audience many times are, you know, professionals or entrepreneurs and they're moms and they're busy and they have 10 other responsibilities and nonprofits that they're helping with and school stuff that they're helping with. There's all kinds of responsibility, but it's something that um, I think comes back to this idea that you're touching on, which is our ability to get many things done and to make choices, right? So how did your parents cultivate that for you? Well, uh, my mom worked part-time outside of the home. And um, of course, I had to relegate to some of the home jobs because I had two little brothers. But they, my mom was still pretty good about letting me play and letting me go and letting me pursue the, the things that I enjoyed. And she also emphasized how important it was for me to go to college. Um, and she supported me becoming a teacher and a physical education person. And, you know, I somehow was able to balance it. And with three brothers, I always had somebody to play with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you and your family, I mean, certainly from your book and from what I've heard you say, it sounds like even though there were those expectations that were just natural at the time, your parents really did support you and they they encouraged you to get out and do the things that were that brought passion. Right. The only things that really bothered me was why I could not understand why I couldn't be on a school team. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand why I couldn't be out there in a uniform playing for the school and I just had to go to the neighborhood playground yeah. to get my opportunity. Well, I know through having experienced that, you are now a passionate advocate for equal rights and opportunities for women. Do you think that you would have been as invested in the cause if you hadn't been exposed to those really obvious disparities in the sports world? Absolutely not. It totally changed my perspective on uh, what women can be and the, the qualities that we can bring to the workplace and to the sports field and to to any any kind of job out there. And there's no doubt about it. I'm constantly advocating for women. And when my little girl was growing up, I had a little plaque in her bedroom as a toddler. And I'd point to it every night and say, girls can do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she grew up with that strong sense of, of that as well. Oh, I don't doubt it. Well, when did you realize the impact that you personally had had on gender equality and inspiring women? You know, that's interesting because you go through your professional career and teaching and coaching, and many times you don't really know the impact you have until much later. Mm -hmm. And it was only really after I had written my book and gotten it out to a lot of people, former athletes that I'd coached and women I'd competed with, and they told me at that, they said, we always thought you were amazing. We always looked up to you. And many of the girls that I coached actually became coaches. And they then told me, they said, we became a coach because of you, because the influence you had. And so a lot of times in in our jobs and teaching and coaching, you don't really know the impact until many, many years afterwards. And so I think my book has inspired a lot of women, Um, not just women that have played for me, but I think women that have played during my era. I think younger women are intrigued by the history of Title IX Mm -hmm. and what change that brought to them and for them. And I think older women, women my age, can really relate to the perseverance, determination, and hope that anyone has when you have a passion. Yeah. Well, what advice do you give to those women who you used to coach who now have become coaches and teachers and who have kind of taken on your role? What do you tell them? Well, I've had great conversations with them, and and they have carried on the flame in terms of of encouraging their athletes to play and compete. The interesting change is, they tell me, is many of the young girls today feel um, uh, not just empowered, but they have a feeling of entitlement, and it kind of bothers some of the coaches. They say, you know, back in my day, you know, we had to pay for our own shoes, and these young girls are coming in saying, why aren't we getting new warm-ups this year or where are our new uniforms? And mm-hmm. they have to kind of remind them that there was a time when we would appreciate anything given yeah, to us. And, yeah. and I think they try to keep them grounded. And that's why memoirs like the one I wrote, and I know there's a lot of other women in my age group, you know, Pat Summit wrote a memoir about what it used to be like. And it's not... I really didn't want my memoir to be a woe is me story. No, I don't think it is at all. 
I really didn't. It's not like, well, you know, this is so unfair. I want it to be a, a story of empowerment and perseverance and determination and continuing to love what you do and push forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you are looking back and you're talking, so, so the example that you just gave, which I thought was fantastic, about this idea of entitlement, it seems like now, I'm not going to say entitlement is a great thing, right? However, to me, that's a lesson that those women are getting the same things now that those young men are getting. Because, you know, in some of the examples that you've given in your book and that we all see in our lives, those young athletes, football players, in particular, many times in the South are are entitled and they, they are given a lot and they expect a lot. And I think in some ways it might be a sign of the times that is actually a positive thing to say those young women are actually getting something that is equivalent. Right. And I think that the important uh, trait for most athletes today that are entitled to these sports opportunities it to be, is to be appreciative of the opportunities and to take advantage of the opportunities they are given, and then share the love with others. I mean, um, you know, like my husband was involved with Special Olympics, and it was always heartwarming to see these athletes out there that have certain disabilities working as hard as a gifted athlete. And just knowing that everyone has a potential, everyone has a gift, and to do what you love to the utmost and appreciate those opportunities and not whine and moan when maybe you're not giving all the extras you think you deserve. Mm -hmm. Well, what did it feel like when you first heard that you'd been hired to coach a women's basketball team after having gone through all that, after having lived through this period before Title IX and kind of forcing your way in? Right. Well, the interesting thing is how that came about. I um, had just won the state championship. I was a high school coach and my fiance, uh, Jim Powers, was also a teacher in the same high school where I was the coach. We had just won the state championship, and we announced we were getting married. And the principal called me in and said, Debbie, you know, there's a school law in our system that married teachers cannot teach in the same school. Well, I was aghast. It was like, is this like Little House on the Prairie where <laughs> teachers couldn't even be married? And, and I thought, I just won a state championship for this school. And you're asking one of us to leave. I was appalled and amazed because I thought if the boys basketball coach had just won a state championship in the state of Indiana, they would be not asking for that. Yeah. So I kind of threw my resume out, and, I, and uh, at that same time, right across town, Ball State University, a major Division One school, needed a women's basketball coach. They called, said, would you please come interview? I did. They wanted me for the job, and the principal of our high school came back to me three weeks later and said, oh, by the way, I went to the school board, and we've changed the rule. Uh. You can stay. And I said, well, bye-bye. I hate leaving my young girls, and I love them so dearly, but I really was excited to coach uh, college basketball when it was yeah. just emerging. And I was allowed to give the first scholarships then to the college women at Ball State. And and um, even though I still have my trials and tribulations, I still drove the van all <laughs> the way to Kent State and in Miami of Ohio in the snow and 
uh, swept the floor before the games and hired the officials and a lot of things. That, but I was in my glory. Oh my and gosh. I've watched it evolve since that time. So. Well, I love how every little story you have that's a piece of your bigger story has another story of perseverance behind it. It's like every success has this deeper story of perseverance. So um, we are talking to Debbie Powers. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce. And when we're back, we'll have more with Debbie, former Ball State basketball coach and author of Meeting Her Match. I came to win, to fight, to conquer, to thrive. I came to win, to survive, to prosper, to rise, to fly. came to win, to fight, to conquer, to thrive. I came to win, to survive, to prosper, to rise, to fly. We are back. You are listening to the She is Fierce radio show. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce, and we are talking with Debbie Powers, former Ball State basketball coach and author of Meeting Her Match. Debbie's career in physical education and sports spanned 33 years and included stints as a high school volleyball, basketball, and tennis coach and the head women's basketball coach at Ball State University, a collegiate volleyball and basketball referee, and a radio sports commentator. She is also the co-author of 11 editions of McGraw-Hill College Health Textbook titled A Wellness Way of Life. And in 2014, she completed the inspiring memoir we've been talking about, Meeting Her Match, in which she recounts her journey in the world of sports. It was awarded first place in the Royal Palm Literary Competition by the Florida Writers Association and was an International Book Award finalist. Debbie, you have this amazing story from, you know, some of the things that you've been sharing with us from when you were younger to all of the things that you're doing today. So let's talk a little bit about writing the book, making these choices. You have this incredible career. You were a professor, a coach. You've done all of this cool stuff. And now you kind of had this resurgence in a completely different area. You're an author. You're out there as a speaker. You're sharing your story and really inspiring women now with the story of, of everything that you've dealt with. Can you talk about what that's been like? Well, Kelly, it's called retirement. <laughs> <laughs> this is not retirement for many people. It's um, it's retiring from a career that spanned 33 years. Uh, it's raising two children who are high school athletes. One, uh, our son actually ended up at Indiana University as an All-American athlete, so following him around. And when all of that was finished and I was retired, people would often ask me, tell us your story. And I have a brother that's a, an actor in Hollywood. And we were sitting around a few years ago, and he said, tell me the story about the time you beat the boys. Mm-hmm. I vaguely remember that, but wasn't. And, and I, you know, I'd been so busy, I really hadn't thought about it. It was like that was a different life. So I told him about it, and he said, you know what? That would make a great movie. That would be like female version of the movie Hoosiers, oh, you know, yeah. David and Goliath, with you know you beating the boys in a state championship <laughs> nail-biting final. And he said, why don't you fly out to L.A. and let me, let's throw it past some, um, some people out here. 
So I did. I flew out and talked to some producers and directors, and and they said, you know, this is a great story, as I gave them my synopsis, but they said, do you have a screenplay? I said, oh, gosh, no. I just have these stories in my head. Well, do you have a book? And I said, oh, no, I, it's all in my head. And they said, well, without a screenplay or a book, we can't do anything. So I came back here, and I set my mind to writing a book. Now, I'd never written a a memoir or a personal kind of book. I'd written textbooks for very boring, very collegiate. Uh, but I took some writing courses. I learned how to write dialogue and the arc of the story and uh, description. And so I, oh, you know, sharpened my pencil and started writing, meeting her match. So it did evolve into an exciting book, I think. Uh, I think it's inspirational. I know you've read it and Many people have contacted me. It's sold quite well. I'm pretty proud of it, actually. Yeah, and you should be. Well, and what about becoming a speaker? So you obviously were a professor, so you were probably used to that. But it's very different to be an inspirational speaker. Well, um, yes, I was in front of the classroom a lot um, at Ball State University because I taught health and wellness courses. But um, it's very easy when you have a story. And um, a lot of women read my book and they contacted me and said, oh, speak to our business women's luncheon or we want you to speak at our book club. Mm-hmm. We're going to read your book as a book club. Um, I've spoken at uh, the NCAA Women's Volleyball Championships at their convention. I've spoken at the NCAA Women's Basketball Championships at their convention to groups about empowerment and history of Title IX. And it's, it's very natural for me because I'm just telling my story. Um, it's been really fun. So professional organizations, and I even had a group in Brazil, an English-speaking uh, English group, read my book as their assignment, and I did a Skype book club with uh, a bunch of students in Brazil. Oh, fun. So that was fun. That so was a great story. I've done Skype book club interviews around the country. Oh, cool. Well, what... What advice do you give? So I know you share your story when you're talking, but what advice do you give and what advice would you offer to the women who are listening? Well, of course, the advice in sport is always never give up. You can do it. You know, David versus Goliath. But then as I evolved as an author and a speaker, it's more of uh, you can change. You can reinvent yourself. You can use your history to empower other people. And gosh, even a a gym teacher can write a book. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, two years ago when we first interviewed you, you shared um, that the best advice that you feel that you have been given is always be yourself and imagine the possibilities. So I love that. I think that's such a cool thing. How do you live that out in your life? Well, I think I try to live each day to its fullest. I try to improve myself whether it be reading, writing. I exercise every day. I think it's really important to stay fit for women as we age. And I even teach an older ladies exercise class. And those girls are great. They appreciate every day they're given. I just feel like we need to constantly be evolving and reinventing ourselves, and not live in the past, even though my memoir is partially in the past. But you've got to learn from the past. And um, I think another thing, young women that read my book can learn from that past 
and usually give it their all in the sports field, knowing that they have a lot more to do opportunities than we women had. Yeah. Well, who were your role models as you were growing up? Oh, it was very easy. My ninth grade gym teacher, Mrs. Falls, was the epitome of grace, athleticism. She was, she, she I wanted to be her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the one I wanted to be. Like I said, the women athletes that I knew were like gymnasts and swimmers and, and uh, Peggy Fleming. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't in a graceful sport. I was in a team sport. So I just wanted to be like my favorite gym teacher growing up. And I, to this day, oh, there's no hesitation. She was the influence that got me into sports and physical education and kept saying. She told me at one time, she said, Debbie, you have talents and skills running out of your ears. <laughs> and I'll always remember that. And so I tried to pursue that, whether it be as a retiree or as a eighth grade athlete. Yeah. Well, she inspired you. You've inspired these other women. They're probably out there inspiring other young girls right it now. It just carries on, I yeah, hope. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, what advice do you think young women, so not just the women, you know, who are listening, who maybe are professionals, but the young girls, maybe their daughters, what advice would you give to them as they're growing up in this world where, yes, you can play sports, but there's still a lot of pressure. There's still a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a difference in the way that we treat young boys and young girls. Well, I think the biggest change is the way young boys look at young girl athletes now. I was, even though I was accepted my, by my boy buddies, the other guys out there were like, oh, you know, she's undesirable. She's, you know, she's, why she's playing sports. I think the support that men give for women athletes today is unbelievable. And uh, as I watch dads with their little soccer girls and dads with their little softball girls, I see a real big difference. And I see respect from male athletes for female athletes. We're not 100% there. Certainly the WNBA does not get the kind of press coverage and the kind of interest that the NBA gets. But, you know, at least they have the opportunity to play their sport at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And I think women need to understand that. You can be the best you can be, and um, it's more appreciated. I love to see the little ponytail girls running up and down the soccer fields now and it just it warms my heart yeah absolutely well I know you know as I was reading your book I think for the first time I was pregnant or had just had my daughter who's now almost three Um, and it was something that really touched me because I think your story while it was you know a different time and there are so many differences there were so many parallels between my experience growing up and yours and the the idea of thinking of my daughter at the time you know, it was a really interesting thing to look at the different generations and how we behave as society, right? How we treat young women. Right. Well, heaven forbid, back in my day, when I was four and five years old, I wanted a baseball glove instead of a doll. Mm-hmm. And I was like chastised. Oh, my gosh. My grandmother thought there was something deadly wrong with me to want yeah. a baseball glove. <laughs> and yet probably your daughter, hey, go yeah, for it's it. It's a natural thing. Natural. Yeah. Get a ball. Get out there and throw and play and slide into second base. And that's a huge difference. Yeah. Well, it's an incredible legacy that you and many women that, you know, came up with you have left for us. So I want to thank you so much, Debbie, for sharing your day with us. You have been an inspiration to me and so many women in our community ever since you spoke at our very first 2015 Women's Wednesday series. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Totally. Well, um, if you are in North Florida and within traveling distance, you will definitely want to join us in a packed out room of women 
at the gorgeous Treasury on the Plaza in downtown St. Augustine, Florida, for our 2017 Women's Wednesday series. It's a five-week series uh, starting on May 31st and then on June 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th. And you may even get to meet Debbie and some of the other incredible speakers from earlier years there, too. You can get tickets at womenswednesdays.com or sheisfiercehq.com forward slash events. And while you're online, make sure you go and buy Debbie's fantastic book, Meeting Her Match. You can get it at debbiepowersauthor.com on Amazon. And if you are in St. Augustine, where Debbie is based, you can actually buy it at the Metal Arts Gallery on the corner of Spanish and Hypolita. So call Debbie, get on there at debbiepowersauthor.com, have your book group read this book, invite her to speak. She's an incredible incredible woman with a great story and I'm grateful to her for everything that she has done. Thank you so much for joining Debbie and I and if you love this interview, find out more about becoming a member of She is Fierce at sheisfiercehq.com forward slash join. Join women around the world who are up leveling their lives as She is Fierce members right now.